Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Last week, CNN legal analyst and Supreme Court biographer Joan Biskupic stopped by the National Constitution Center to discuss her new book, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Biskupic explored Roberts's early life, his path to the Supreme Court, and some of the most consequential decisions of his career. She also explored the dual motivations she sees in the Chief Justice's work, his desire to follow his conservative conscience, and his mission to preserve the Supreme Court's institutional legitimacy. Biskupic was interviewed by NCC President Jeffrey Rosen. Here's Jeff. Thank you. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. So good to see you. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution. Joan Biskupic, whose commentary is so much in demand, has taken the time to come to Philadelphia to talk about a figure in American life who may do more to determine, to determine whether or not the Supreme Court remains a nonpartisan institution than anyone else, and that is Chief Justice John Roberts. I have been eager to talk to Joan about her book ever since she first told me about it here at the Constitution Center two years ago. It's just superb. She sat down with the chief for at least 20 hours of interviews. It's the most comprehensive account of his career and chief justiceship that exists. And we're, all of us are going to learn so much from Joan. It's my great pleasure to introduce my old friend, journalistic colleague, and one of America's most distinguished writers, commentators, and biographers of the Supreme Court, Joan Biskupic. She is a full-time CNN legal analyst. Before joining CNN, she was editor in charge for legal affairs at Reuters and Supreme Court correspondent for The Washington Post and USA Today. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Explanatory Journalism in 2015. She has written several superb Supreme Court biographies, including ones on Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Antonin Scalia, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She's now written a book that she will sign after the show, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Please join me in welcoming Joan Biskupic. <laughs> Thank you. And somehow it's fitting that not only did I talk to Jeff only just about two years to the day about this book to kind of explore some theories, but it was at the founding of this center that I started working on Sandra Day O'Connor's biography because she was here to christen the center in what, like 2003, something like 2004. that? 2004, and, and, and you remember, of course, what happened when the proscenium fell and Justice O'Connor audibly said, we could have all been killed. I know, I remember <laughs> that very well. Yes. And I remember thinking this was worth the train trip. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes, so yeah, I started the book in 03 and so it was 04, that's right. So, so the Constitution Center where I've talked about my previous books somehow is always good luck for me in the biography world as is Jeff. Wonderful, well, uh, it's mutual and here's an invitation for your next one uh, when okay. it comes out. <laughs> but we have so much to talk about. Sure. Uh, for the chief, and I want to be, uh, the thesis of this really illuminating book is that there are two conflicting strands in the temperament and judicial philosophy of John Roberts. On the one hand, there is the conservative who ever since he worked in the Reagan administration, really ever since he was at Harvard Law School, has had a uh, conservative view of the Constitution, which has sometimes been at odds with the reigning liberal orthodoxy. And then there's the institutionalist, the chief who was so devoted to the institutional legitimacy of the court that when he took office, he said that he hoped his chief justiceship would be remembered for a focus on institutional legitimacy and who so importantly and significantly voted at the last minute to uphold the Affordable Care Act because of a concern of institutional legitimacy. So I want to begin with his mother and his father. That's always a good place to begin when we're talking about any of us. And tell us about what you learned about his upbringing and what that might have created in terms of a concern about institutional legitimacy. Sure. His, his people came from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, the father uh, who bears his name, bore his name, uh, John Glover Roberts Sr. Uh, came from a long line of uh, English, a little bit of Irish people who had come over from mining country in, uh, in England and then settled in the coal mining areas of Pennsylvania. 
They came a generation before his mother, who was Slovakian, and her last name was Podraski. It was Rosemary Podraski. She's still living. Uh, the father has passed. And uh, they came from two different kinds of worlds themselves. The, the father lived up on a hill on an uh, avenue called Wonder Street, which I just loved. Uh, Wonder Street, and he was the 10th child in this family that had slowly risen in the coal and steel industry and done quite well. His mother were, his mother's family uh, was from down in, in the valley of, of Johnstown and in kind of the areas where lots of pool holes, taverns, and, and they did well too, but not the same way that the, the Roberts clan had. So in some ways, the, the parents... Um, got together across, across ethnicities. And uh, some of the researchers I met in Johnstown and Cambria County said, you know, there still are some divisions there of, um, you know, who the people recalled the, the unusualness of people kind of marrying, marrying across the tracks from back then. But the mother was much more of a driving force herself because she was the one who did not go to college. The father went to college. Uh, he went to the University of Pittsburgh, became an engineer, and rose in the Bethlehem steel hierarchy. And Jeff, I compare the, the steel hierarchy of the 50s and 60s and into the 70s as a bit like the judiciary, wedded to seniority, decorum, the trappings of office, Bethlehem steel uh, before everything tanked in the industry, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, had always, you know, the the uh, CEO of Bethlehem Steel at the time said, you know, wherever they built a plant, if there wasn't a golf course nearby, they made sure they created one because it was important for everybody to belong to a country club and be part of that kind of sort of the, 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 industri the, um, the industry hierarchy. So, uh, and when you think of steel in America, you know, deeply rooted, and I think Young John Roberts grew up with that kind of emphasis in the household from his father's side and from his mother's side. She was the driver, always bragging about his grades and how well he was doing and pushing him on. He was one of four children, but the only boy, which can make a difference. <laughs> it can indeed. Um, th the father's role in Bethlehem Steel is so interesting and it's so suggestive, as you say, to think about the effect that that very hierarchical institution of Big Steel might have had on Roberts's worldview. And when I read that, I thought of this passage, you, you know, and you nicely cited this interview that I had the privilege of having with the chief at the end of his first term. And I was asking him about his upbringing. And I said, I asked Roberts whether anything in his own background would account for his interest in bringing people together. He said he hadn't thought about it before, but he recalled that his father, an executive at Bethlehem Steel, was most known for his willingness to work with unions at a time when there's a lot of enmity between management and the unions. Roberts would show up unexpectedly at the union hall, buy a round of drinks for people in the union, and Roberts would say, I think that's a general view of bringing a broader degree of consensus than his peers might have adopted. Can, can you riff on that? And I can, which really revealing. and I can tell you that the father was rising in the steel industry just when the steel industry was declining in some ways and running into all sorts of problems. Think back to the 60s and 70s. The steel industry, along with higher education, were two of the first places that the Department of Justice started going after in the wake of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, trying to bring more diversity to those, those places. So John Roberts' father was involved with all these issues of how were African-Americans being treated in the workplace? Should you have quotas? Should you not have quotas? What should you do about representation? And that was a, a big issue that actually went through the courts, as you know. Uh, so he's dealing with that. He's dealing with all these new environmental mandates from the federal government, not just uh, mandates for diversity and anti-bias uh, regulations, but also environmental ones. And environmental ones end up you know, causing a lot of trouble for um, for the industry and you know, car manufacturers, uh, less steel becomes need needed because of uh, new manufacturing. He's got that going. You've got the competition from uh, foreign foreign steel, Japanese steel, and one thing that um, the chief's family also liked to talk about, in addition to his work with the unions, was the fact that he went over to Japan to try to understand what they were doing that we making their steel industry much more effective, uh, you know, lighter products and things like that, uh, and tried to bring it back and help the uh, management at Bethlehem Steel. But 
the steel industry's problems were so deep and intractable that one, one individual was not able to, to make much of a, a dent, so to speak. But the working with the labor unions, I think, is something that John Roberts was very proud of, of his father. And uh, the, he, he was written up you know, in a couple of news stories uh, at the time of the decline in working at, in the industry and always was trying to sound a pragmatic note, uh, as we might say also of the Chief Justice in this day and age. So if the institutional mindedness came from those early experiences, where did the conservatism come from? I think, you know, he grew, I think it was in part kind of just the upbringing and then his, his natural tension with what was going on at Harvard when he was a young student there. He grows up, grows up in Northern Indiana, in a pretty sheltered world. Uh, I remember when I flew into, I, I actually come from the south side of Chicago myself, so I know the greater Chicago region and some of the um, nearby Indiana uh, locales. So I fly into Midway to, uh, and I start driving over to northern Indiana, and I'm going through the Gary area. And for anybody who's been through that area, you're thinking, oh my god, look at the place he grew up in. But actually, he didn't grow up in Gary. The place, Long Beach, is, it was kind of a, a very nice enclave right on the lake, beautiful setting that was once a vacation community for people in the Chicago area. And it frankly was once restricted. And they had in their museums there, they have these brochures that talk about, uh, you know, we're, we're the, the kind of community that only the right sort of people can, can live in. But of course, by the time John Roberts' family has moved in, uh, in the early 60s, any kind of restrictions could not be enforced because of Supreme Court rulings. But it just gives you a, a, an idea of the kind of um, almost entirely white, uh, upper class, nice area that he comes from, uh, comes from a Catholic, uh, very Catholic world, uh, which I, frankly, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we've got so many Catholics on the court, and we do, but not all Catholics on the court have been created equal, given that Bill Brennan was Catholic, Sonia Sotomayor was raised Catholic, so I don't, I don't always put a lot of stock in that, but his kind of Catholicism tended to be more conservative. So then he gets to Harvard right when we're still in the post-Vietnam era, and he, he bristles at some of those protests. He doesn't like the liberalism of Harvard. He's, uh, he's already considering himself a Republican. I don't think in the 70s he would have said, I'm definitely conservative. Those just, it wasn't part of the, the lingo as much. Uh, but he's, he's resisting some of the, uh, the Harvard tendencies of the majority there. But Lucky John Roberts, just as he emerges from Harvard and goes on to his judicial clerkships, conservatism is in ascendancy. And when he's finishing his, um, his most prestigious clerkship with William Rehnquist, Ronald Reagan has just been elected. And he says, I felt the call. I felt the call hearing Ronald Reagan's inaugural speech. So that's, that finally gave voice to what was part of him along the way. And you described very powerfully how much he resonated with uh, President Reagan's message and his very heartfelt letter of thanks to Reagan and Reagan's reciprocation. And that was clearly a formative moment. But just before, I can't let his childhood go without asking you to read sections of the amazing letter that he wrote oh, when he was I, and I 13 years old, which you reproduced. First of all, how did you get it? And then okay. read it. Oh, and what do you well, make here's it? the other thing. Yeah. So, so after I've driven over to the... Um, Long Beach, I stopped by his school. And at this point, I, I, I made some formal visits to the school. But the first day that I showed up happened to be on a weekend. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go over and look at La Lumiere. That was the, the very fancy elite prep school he went to. And I have to tell you that many of you might be familiar with the elite prep schools of the East Coast that were you know, typically Protestant. Catholic boys did not have elite boarding prep schools. They're just, you just didn't have such a thing uh, in the Midwest or even on the East Coast. It was, you know, there were maybe one or two here or there, but it just wasn't the tradition that you think of of Choate. You know, they just, it, Catholic boys tended to go to like, you know, St. Ignatius, <laughs> you know, St. Ignatius, Marist, you know, Notre, a junior Notre Dame kind of school. And that's what most of his, um, his peers would go to. But just before he's ready to apply for, uh, for high school, this very fancy boarding school opens up, modeled after the schools in the East, but it's for, it's a Catholic, it's a lay Catholic school uh, where they're going to uh, provide Latin and Greek and calculus and all the uh, pre-college classes that they want for these, these kids. 
many of whom were children of Bethlehem Steel executives. And John Roberts, at age 13, realizes that's the school I want to go to. He was encouraged by some of his teachers in grade school. And he writes to the headmaster, and he says, it's Mr. Moore, and he says, the main reason I would like to attend La Lumiere School is to get a better education. I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd, and I feel like the competition at La Lumiere will force me to work as hard as I can. And he goes on about how he, he thinks this will all pay off when he goes to college. And then he closes by saying, I'm sure that by attending and doing my best at La Lumiere, I will assure myself of a fine future. I won't be content to get a good job by getting a good education. I want to get the best job by getting the best education. And the first time I saw that full letter was when I stopped by there on this Saturday, and one of the faculty members said, oh, well, come on in. And I always like to look at the library. I don't know. I just said, you know, I just want to see what your library is like. I didn't even think that I'd see this. But there under glass in the library was this original wow. letter written on December 22nd, 1968. And so I then asked the school for a copy of the letter and then, you know, made sure we got the permissions and all that. It's uh, riveting and it's such beautiful handwriting. And, oh, yeah. And what, and what does that letter say to you? It seems like a kind of very revealing document to write at 13 uh, I, years old. I, I think it was. And some people have said to me, Jeff, oh, don't you think his mother helped him with it? I actually don't. <laughs> I actually think that, uh, you know, some children would have needed this kind of help. But I think he was, even at that point, he was already a star student. And one anecdote that an aunt told me about him is when, she, when he was even five years old, the aunt and the uncle had come over to the house, and the mother said to, said to them, oh, look, Jackie, as he was known at the time, John Roberts was known as Jackie, oh, look, Jackie got all A's on his report card. And the uncle said, that calls for a dollar bill. Now, this is like, you know, 1961-ish, 1960-61-ish, two-ish. And that, a dollar bill was a lot of money back then. And so he was already doing very well, and he was very focused. And uh, I think that it tells you that, you know, first of all, this is, this is a young man who takes education seriously. He's also willing to work hard. I mean, that's, that's one thing that I document throughout this book, of how hard he was always working, how persistent he was. And if his assignment was to read one book, he'd say, I want to read three books. You know, he was always doing more. And, they, and at this school, they had to give him special Latin instruction because he exceeded the routine Latin work that the students were given. It's striking, I think inspiring, about what yeah. a serious scholar he was and how as late as college and law school, he's both working so hard that it's sometimes he has to be hospitalized with anxiety, but also he's defining himself as a scholar. And he writes a senior thesis at Harvard on Lloyd George and still thinking that he wants to be a history professor as late as he goes to law school. That's right. And I think it was, uh, you know, he's such a product of the times. He's a product of the times in terms of his ideology, but he's also a product of the times in terms of the market. His, uh, his, uh, senior thesis professor, his advisor in the history department at Harvard, was himself working on a, a PhD in history and was thinking about law school because the market at that point, we're in the mid-70s, was starting to get glutted with PhDs. And it was getting harder and harder for people to get teaching positions. And I actually went back and did some research on that. And indeed, a lot of people with PhDs didn't get the jobs of their choice because this was a time where students were starting to turn away from the humanities. So John Roberts made a decision in part. He, I think he always loved history. He remains a student of history. But I think, again, he's practical to, to then go to law school instead of to go for the PhD. And he goes right from uh, completing undergrad in three years at Harvard to Harvard Law School. But Jeff, just so you know, he wasn't immediately thinking he'd be a litigator or any kind of uh, even a pellet lawyer, he thought maybe he would teach law. Um, and he'd be a great uh, law professor. Although he did tell me when we, during our interview, he said, you know, Professor Rosen, uh, uh, no disrespect, but law professors have made terrible Supreme Court justices because they're too ideological. They're too committed to their my way or the highway, and they're not committed enough to the teen dynamic and the sense of uh, institutional legitimacy. So this, what we need to do in the, you know, in the rest of this conversation is just now figure out how he balances these competing considerations, and then we'll make some judgments about how much institutional legitimacy might weigh in the future as he 
occupies the center seat. So he's at the heart of the Reagan revolution. He's writing these memos about affirmative action and voting rights that are uh, arguing for changing existing conceptions of law. And yet he emerges from that experience and from his early litigation not viewed by the judge pickers as a movement conservative in the way that his competitors for the uh, Supreme Court seat, Michael Ludig or even Samuel Alito would be. So how can you encapsulate uh, what kind of conservative emerged from the Reagan administration and from his early appellate practice? That's a great question because in some of the memos, you see strands of something that could have easily been written by Michael Ludig. They were very ideologically driven, and he was always watching to make sure that others in the Reagan administration were all in. He, if, if he didn't feel that uh, someone was um, articulating the agenda as strongly as he or she should, he would write a note to uh, one of his bosses, and he was actually quite critical at times of Rex Lee. Who was uh, who famously said, "I'm not the pamphleter general. I'm the solicitor general." He he tried to buck the administration's push for him to be more ideological, uh, but you don't think of John Roberts that way. And those, now, those what John Roberts says of those memos is, "Look, I was like 26 years old. I wasn't, uh, you know, I was I was just following their their uh, their instructions." But there was a, a real fervor, and he writes to one of his judicial mentors, Henry Friendly, during this time to say, it is so exciting to be in the administration at a time when so much that has been taken for granted for so long is being challenged. He wants to roll back the liberal era uh, policies. But at the same time that he's got these very strong conservative views, he also uh, projects a more reasonable set of arguments, and a more reasonable individual. He's, he's uh, I think in part it's probably the, his mode of education, his mode of presentation, what made him such an appellate, strong appellate advocate. Uh, at one point, one of his adversaries says, uh, John Roberts always sounds eminently reasonable, and he, he does, he does. He's, and I think he likes he likes those markers. He doesn't want to ever be seen as someone who's a crusader. And he, he tries to tamp that down in himself. And mostly he can, but there's times when he can't. And I think on, on the racial issues, uh, that certainly has emerged throughout. So I think even now, Jeff, we see the tension as it's playing out at the Supreme Court. And we certainly saw the tension in you know, things like the health care dispute. But I think they've always been... Uh, a bit of a conflict inside John Roberts, but I think he's always opted to try to put himself above and not to be seen as someone who was a mere ideologue, just the way he now so much stresses to everyone that the court is different. The court, as part of the third branch, is different than the elected branches. We, people should understand, first and foremost, that we have, other, we have a separate mission and we are not going to get caught up in politics. I, I let, I, let's just dwell on this because he, uh, I, I, it seems to me that he deeply believes this. And he yeah. said it extensively in, uh, in the interview with me and other, in the speeches that he gave when he became chief. He said, I hope when people go back and look at my decisions, a majority of them will show a concern for institutional legitimacy. So I guess my first question is, do you think he believes this? I do think he believes it. I think that he, I, 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 I actually think he always thinks he's doing exactly the right thing. I think he's, he's one of those people who doesn't have a lot of natural regret. He works very hard. He's very determined. Uh, he, but, but like everybody, I think that you know, we, we're sometimes in denial about how things might seem or how, how they might really be. Um, I think that... His colleagues, both on the right and left, would quarrel with this notion that he's uh, just calling them as he sees them. You know, the famous umpire line of, I just, you know, we're just calling the balls and strikes. I think that other external factors do influence him. Now, one external factor that influences him might be the regard and stature of the Supreme Court and wanting people to believe in it, but that sometimes causes some some compromise. So, well, let's just use an example, and I'm sure we would get to it, but if somebody was so institutionally minded, 
maybe you would say that he, that justice shouldn't have led the court to a 5-4 ruling in the Shelby County versus Holder decision that overturned an act of Congress that had been, you know, researched and the subject of many, many hearings and that had, you know, essentially had enough legitimacy behind it and overturned it on a, a theory that had a bunch of holes in it, the, the equal sovereignty theory that he articulated for that. So I think that not all, all the rulings he has written and all the votes he has cast would fall into the category of being an institutionalist, but yet I do think he believes he is. So just to play devil's advocate or, or yeah. whatever, uh, you know, when we talked, he, to he told me in the interview, I, I, I have uh, views about the Constitution, strong views that I'm not going to abandon, but whenever it's possible to find common ground or decide something narrowly, I'm going to try to do that. What about the argument that when it comes to a colorblind Constitution, this is just something that he really believes that the Constitution compels. He's not able to compromise there, and he just thinks it was the right decision. Yeah, well, I would say that that's, that's exactly that, the issue, and the place where he wouldn't compromise exhibit A on that is the parents involved versus Seattle schools ruling, where he, he defied his, his uh, ideal of consensus and trying to rule as narrowly as possible when he wrote an opinion for plurality that lost centrist conservative Anthony Kennedy because of his interpretation of Brown v. Board of Education. It, was, it, it flew in the face of what the people who argued Brown v. Board of Education believed that that 1954 landmark stood for, but it reinforced his own personal view of, as you just referred to it, the colorblind constitution, where he, he, said, he believes, John Roberts believes, that uh, racial remedies, uh, like campus affirmative action, but even ones that might not be as controversial, some school integration plans, are as harmful as the original discrimination in the first place on a constitutional basis. So I think that that's, that is a tension because it, it blocks him from finding more consensus. You mentioned his colleagues' reaction to decisions like Parents Involved and Citizens yeah. United. And one of the revelations of the book is that not all of his colleagues are always happy with his leadership style. You talk about their bristling at the fact that he listed uh, the chief justices separately from the numbers of associate justices and other uh, factors that led them to find him remote. Tell us more about what you learned about what his colleagues think about John Roberts. Right. This was something that uh, I came to slowly because you're never sure how much stock to put into you know, personality difficulties with nine individuals who are appointed for life but didn't choose each other. And uh, so they, uh, although ironically, Brett Kavanaugh helped choose uh, <laughs> Samuel Alito and John Roberts because he was in the Bush uh, administration at the time. But normally... Well, the, sorry, that was fascinating because the Bushies, uh, Cheney thought that Roberts was too much of a squish and Kavanaugh vouched for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, isn't that interesting? And now Brett Kavanaugh is up there with him, uh, which actually could play out for some, some decisions this term, too. Yes, it could. So... So as I started, you know, I'd been, I've covered the court for a very long time, and I knew how much uh, William Rehnquist was beloved by his colleagues, even if they completely disagreed with his <laughs> rulings. And I would put Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the top of that category. She still says, when she refers to my chief, she thinks of Bill Rehnquist. And John Roberts sometimes says, you know, I wish he'd stop doing that. But, <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, so I, and, and going through the Rehnquist correspondence, which I did uh, out at Stanford at the Hoover Institution, you know, you see how much uh, the justices on both sides uh, really appreciated William Rehnquist as an honest broker, as chief justice, again, irrespective of where he stood on the law. So I started picking up dissatisfaction with John Roberts in terms of how much he... Um, how controlling he might be, and also just how much he was showing his cards and whether he was operating in a straightforward way or more strategic. And I felt that, a lot, that some percolating distrust, to mix metaphors, crystallized with, uh, with the Affordable Care Act decision when he, when he switched votes, actually twice in that case. And what I, what I picked up over that episode and the subsequent ones is that 
there is some distrust still about what he's showing, how he shows his hand, how he doesn't show his hand, how, uh, how straightforward he might be. And um, actually, you probably remember, Jeff, that I talked to you about this when I was here two years ago, because you, you don't know what to make of it, because the chief presents himself as such a, um, someone who's trying to build bridges to all his colleagues, and he wants everyone to get along. But I found that he actually was inspiring some hostility. And um, some, some of the comments he would make in their private conference room that were pa passed on to me uh, could be des described as dismissive of his, his colleagues, you know, some snarky, th some snarky remarks. And, you know, I had to figure out, okay, how much of a deal do I make of these? And also, what do I say to readers about how much it matters? And it's, it's a very subtle theme in certain chapters of the book. I don't make a big deal out of it, but people have picked up on it, in part because of the way John Roberts presents himself. But what I end up concluding is that, you know, it's real in terms of relationships. It's real. But in terms of the law of the land, has anybody ever changed his vote or, or uh, uh, you know, written a different kind of concurrence out of any kind of animosity in relations with the chief or with others? And I don't think so. I think it, it, occur, it matters at the margins. It matters, you know, if, if somebody's going to back down from a concurrence, if someone's going to, um, you know, give goodwill in terms of some of the discussions. But in terms of the law of the land, I don't think that this plays out, it, but it does play out in a very human way. So let's unpack it because it's so crucial. Uh, tell us more about the healthcare decision and the votes that he changed. And then uh, assuming that he changed his vote because of his concern about the institutional legitimacy of the court, which appears that he did, wouldn't that just uh, inspire uh, resentment and anger from both sides because they didn't like the compromise that he struck, but wasn't, would the charitable explanation be that the resentment was a necessary consequence of his institutionalism? Yeah, and, and, but yes, yes, except for the timing and the way he went about it. You know, because, okay, so they vote, we have this historic three days of oral arguments back in March of 2012 over President Obama's major domestic achievement, this, this law, the Affordable Care Act, that was signed in March of 2010. So they, they have these arguments. They go into their private conference. And the initial vote, led by the chief, is five to four to strike down what we've all called the individual mandate. And that was the requirement that everyone buy health insurance so that the, uh, the health insurance structure is supported by people who are healthy, not just people who are ill. You know, it's the, the, the idea that this cost should be borne by everyone, and the, the law established the new marketplaces and had many, many other provisions. Another provision was the Medicaid expansion for people near the poverty line. So there are two major planks of this thing, and they vote five to four that Congress lacked the power under uh, the, its Commerce Clause power to, to demand this individual insurance requirement. And that's where everybody was paying attention. That's what, what all the attention at the time was on. And there were the five conservatives, led by the chief, voted to strike it down, and the four liberals said no. But meanwhile, they also took a vote on the uh, Medicaid expansion, and they voted to uphold it. And the chief was with them to uphold it. They don't vote in any way on this taxing power issue, which, again, becomes, rele becomes relevant in the very end, because that's what the chief hangs it on. The question coming out of the conference, uh, as they call their private sessions, is what's going to fall with the individual mandate because all these different parts were intertwined. And Justice Kennedy, who's normally in the middle on these things, was adamant that the whole law had to fall. This major, you know, nearly a thousand page law that had all sorts of other provisions that were popular with people uh, would have to would have to be overturned because of how intertwined it was, and Congress had not written in any kind of so-called severability clause. And the Chief Justice starts having second thoughts about that, the consequences of that. And you remember, this was an election year. There's so much pressure on the court, and there's a presumption among some commentators that the Republican-appointee-controlled Republican Supreme Court is going to invalidate the signature domestic achievement of uh, President Barack Obama. And the chief, the chief is trying to figure out a middle ground on this. And he's not getting any cooperation or assistance or you know, help at all from uh, Anthony Kennedy, who he usually deals with on, who he was usually dealing with 
on any kind of compromise. Meanwhile, over to the far right are Justices Alito, Scalia, and Clarence Thomas, and they're, they're not going to play. They're not in play at all. On the far left, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor are not going to be in play either. And they, they are traditionally the ones who are always over to the far left and not working with the chief that much. But Justices Kagan and Breyer on the left, but open to trying to take down the temperature, try to find some compromise with the chief, begin to work with him after he decides that he can find uh, legitimate grounds for the individual mandate to be upheld on taxing power. And what makes the conservatives so angry is, first of all, even though the taxing power was completely briefed by the Obama administration, it was even subject to arguments, it was never voted on in conference. It, they, they never took an up or down vote on that. So they, were, they felt, you know, in Scalia's word, that it was you know, fly-by-night briefing, that it was, just was not a fair, fair thing to suddenly turn to. And the, um, the liberal justices are, want, want this to unfold this way, but they're also worried that the chief is going to you know, possibly shift back again because you know, their, their, feeling, their original feeling coming out of that conference was complete demoral, demoralization because they're thinking, it's going to be five to four. This big law is going to go down, and there's nothing we can do about it. But all of a sudden, the chief shows some flexibility. But at the same time that he decides to find grounds to uphold the mandate, he decides that the Medicaid expansion should be killed. And this is, again, it didn't get a lot of attention at the time, but this was really important for millions of Americans near the poverty line. But the problem with it, as the chief then decided, was that uh, the way Congress had written the expansion law, it was, uh, it was essentially coercing the states into doing this program. Medicaid is almost entirely funded by the federal government, but it, with that comes a lot of strings. And the federal government was, Congress said in the Medicaid expansion, if, you're, if you don't expand the clientele, the reach of the Medicaid, all of your Medicaid funding is going to disappear. And... Um, as the chief ends up writing, this was essentially like holding a gun to the head of the states. The Justices Breyer and Kagan decide to change their votes and go with the chief on that to show a certain amount of cooperation and feeling that the chief himself was making this big compromise that was going to get lots of criticism among his conservative brethren, which it did. So as a show of cooperation and sort of moving toward him, that's why they changed their votes. But they also figured that this was essentially free money for the states. Weren't all the states going to adopt the expansion? But lo and behold, so many Republican governors did not want anything to do with the Obama expansion there and said no. It, that, that has changed over the years. But that turned out to be a bit of a surprise to the justices on the left. OK, so I'm going to make a strong statement just for the sake of it, and I'd like your reaction. Yeah. John Roberts gets huge credit for this decision. Yes. His hero is John Marshall, Chief Justice John Marshall, who he admires for committing acts of judicial jujitsu, engaging in judicial statesmanship, yes. avoiding battles in the short term in order to shore up the court's power in the long term. And by visibly struggling with the most polarized question of his age, by pulling the court back from the point of really narrowing federal power in the most significant way since the New Deal, he preserved the court's bipartisan legitimacy and proved that he meant when he said when he cared, said that he would put uh, legitimacy above politics. Discuss. That's right. No, I think he should. He, people come up to him still and thank him, and that decision has again, you know, going with that part of the the decision. That decision has. Uh, really held in people's minds to define John Roberts as a moderate. It's a one-of-a-kind decision, but it was a hugely important decision. And Charles Freed, uh, a Reagan solicitor general who succeeded Rex Lee, who was seen as much more ideological, actually gives him credit too. Says, look, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> the, the ruling was shot through with, uh, with all sorts of problems. Uh, people could rightly complain about the taxing rationale because it wasn't consistent with other parts of the ruling, but it, it, it got the job done. It got the job done. So uh, I would say that, yes, this was an important ruling that he did and that uh, 
the, the grief he has gotten and continues to get from conservatives and, and got at the time from uh, then businessman Donald Trump and continues to get from President Donald Trump, uh, probably for the country was worth it. But inside, the way he went about it, uh, I think it still puzzles and confuses his colleagues, but your point is well taken. For the country, it's, it, it made a big difference in people's lives, and it still does. And, and this, the Affordable Care Act is coming back to the court, and I cannot imagine that John Roberts would now suddenly want to do what a judge down in Texas did and validate the whole thing all over again. So now let's think about the future. This is the first time, I think, in history, uh, according to Akilah Mar, that the chief is both chief and swing justice now that uh, Kennedy is retired. Yeah, yeah. He holds tremendous power uh, over the future of constitutional law. And in the past two years, you'll know the statistics better because you reported them. He's joined the liberals in something like four, uh, five to four decisions, as opposed to having done that only uh, twice in the previous 10 years or something like that. He's been doing it a lot since Justice Kennedy retires and seems to be signaling both a willingness to avoid sweeping constitutional questions and when he can't, joining the liberals to preserve the court's institutional legitimacy. Do you think that this will be a feature of his chief justiceship and how do you think that he will lead the Roberts court moving forward? I, I think it definitely will be. I think he's going to continue to inch to the left precisely for those reasons. First of all, he has already acknowledged publicly that he's voting as chief justice and writing opinions in a way that would be different if he were an associate justice. He already, even before Justice Kennedy left, he was wear, wearing the weight of his leadership position. And you know, the court is his informally in name. We refer to the Roberts Court. So he already was, was very aware of how people were perceiving the Supreme Court. And I think Individual concurrences of his reveal that. For example, in Citizens United, when he joins the Kennedy majority, but he also writes separately to discuss why he thinks this isn't such a terrible reversal of precedent. But, but he, so he was already taking on a different role as chief than he would have been as an associate justice based on his own um, ideology. But now, if he's going to say, as he's done, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, there are no Bush judges or Clinton judges. He has to deliver more because it was Anthony Kennedy who proved that point in, in ways because he was a Ronald Reagan jurist who didn't vote the way, you know, let's take another Ronald Reagan jurist, Anthony, uh, Antonin Scalia did. He was much more in the middle. Obviously, Sandra Day O'Connor, another Reagan appointee, was like that too. So both of them essentially gave the court some cover to say we're, it's, not just a, it's not just a politically defined institution or an ideologically defined institution. There's some play in the middle. Without Justices O'Connor and Kennedy, there really would be no play in the middle unless John Roberts stepped into that role. And I think that he feels it's very important for the country, and especially at, in our polarized times with Donald Trump as president, he needs to show he needs to deliver on the statements he made to you early in his tenure and that he made in other public venues saying, we are not political. And the way to do it is to move a bit to the left. But what I say is that that's not going to be across the board. I think there will be certain areas, again, in, in his very firm views on race, where we're just not going to see that. For example, there's a case coming up from Harvard uh, challenging racial affirmative action. I could see him uh, voting with a five to four court against that and not looking back. Uh, agreed. And it's striking. In 2006, he's telling me and others, these are polarized times. The country is divided. It's important for the yeah. court to maintain its legitimacy. How remarkably much truer that is now. And I'm just putting it out there, and I, I'm speaking again, you know, this is the nonpartisan National Constitution yeah. Center. For all of our great friends here, isn't this the perfect person to be leading the court at an incredibly divided time? And do, can you see him uh, in significant areas from Roe v. Wade to the scope of federal power and the regulatory state avoiding the 
worst fears of liberals and pulling the court back from that abyss? I, I can. And I think that liberals, his, his liberal colleagues are counting on, on that concern of his for what does the Roberts Court do at a time of constitutional crisis? What does the Roberts Court do at a time of this serious polarization and everything we're observing in the executive branch and, frankly, the legislative branch? What does John Roberts do? And I think um, whether you call it certain self-consciousness, whether you call it regard for the institution, whether you call it just plain you know, concern for his own legacy with, the, with that of the institution, Whatever is motivating him, there are these motivations that I think his liberal colleagues are counting on. And I, th I think you're right, that it's, it's a different court than if, you know, I can't say for sure what Samuel Alito would have done if he were chief justice at this moment, but everything that Samuel Alito has, has done since he came on in January of 2006 has been so consistently of a piece that I don't think that he would be ready to vary with, with the times the way this chief justice is. You mentioned the possibility of constitutional crisis and let's move forward past 2020 and imagine a Democrat uh, is elected and there's a Democratic uh, Congress that passes versions of the Green New Deal and the court threatens to strike it down and the, and the Democrats start threatening court packing, which they're absolutely doing and could be a very real possibility. Uh, and it would be 1936 all over again. And then Charles Evans Hughes pulled the court back from the abyss, also a legitimacy-minded uh, 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 chief justice. How would Chief Justice Roberts react in that kind of constitutional crisis? Okay, again, this is where John Roberts is a consistent student of history. He knows very well what Chief Justice Hughes did back then with his negotiations with the Senate, kind of on the QT. And he is really, he, his statement in November, uh, John Roberts' statement in November of 2018 when he said, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, I don't think that was issued as a, merely a rebuke to President Trump. I think he was speaking to everyone, right and left, trying to remind people that the court, again, is separate. I think he is paying attention to the court packing issue. I think he takes it seriously. He's not like some of us who initially were like, ah, that's never going to go anywhere. I, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody can say anything like that anymore. I mean, I've stopped saying, oh my God, that'll never happen because everything we yes. <laughs> keeps happening for yes. God's sake, it keeps yes. happening. So I think that John Roberts is paying attention and what he wants is not just those on the, uh, the right wing to, stop thinking of the court as a political institution. He's worried about what the left might do. He, I, think, I think, Jeff, he's, he's thinking ahead. Absolutely. He's thinking ahead at that, too. He always, he always has, as yeah. you noted. So in Marshall's day, you could have a chief who masked the court by the force of his personality, as Chief Justice Taft, who Roberts admires, also created unanimity in an incredibly polarized age when Republican and Democratic uh, appointees are so far apart, is he basically doing as best he can to keep the court from being an entirely political institution? I think he, this is what I think. I think that he probably could, so much is falling to him right now. I mean, really, how he votes is how any case can turn out, given, given his, his place at the ideological center. And he also is chief. He essentially sets the table for all the discussions uh, he, he runs the conference where they decide what to decide for the cases they take up. He initiates the, the votes on, on the cases they've heard. So he's, so much is in his hands. And I guess the question then becomes, what kind of coalition building does he do within the court? Now, one thing that I have to say is that when they were the court of eight, in that the 400 plus days between Justice Scalia's death and Neil Gorsuch's appointment, or actual confirmation, there was really some cooperation with um, the chief and Justice Kennedy and Justices Kagan and Breyer especially, but all of them. They all tried to figure out, how do we get by without in this, in this dilemma of just eight and not have so many 
deadlocks, 4-4 deadlocks, and, and they worked together. But that all disappeared last term. Last term, they had more 5-4 rulings as a percentage than, than they had in, in many prior terms. And the chief was really locked in on the, on the right, as was Anthony Kennedy, which was unusual for him at that time. Uh, but so, and there was, there was a lot of unhappiness among the justices then. And again, not just right versus left, but, uh, but this suspicions between right and left and then little factions between uh, in, the, in the camps. And I think that that's, that's something that is, is a constant um, effort for him, just how he works with his colleagues. And it's strange that right now so much is kind of in his hands alone. That's remarkable. I need to get to questions, but I have to ask one more. Uh, might Justice Kavanaugh join Chief Justice Roberts in this pragmatic, centrist compromise, at least in some cases? And what do the tea leaves say about that so yeah, far? So far, we've seen that happen in a couple instances that have been notable. And that's a, that's a real internal struggle right now. Justice Kavanaugh has a strong incentive to show a little bit more moderation, I think, given coming out of the confirmation hearings, to, to move slowly and more incrementally. And I am sure the chief is trying to enlist him as a partner here. But then, you know, Justice Kavanaugh is a more conservative jurist. He demonstrated that on the DC Circuit over, let's see, 12 years, I think he was on the DC Circuit. Yeah, so he, you know, he has a record. And we know, uh, you know, I've known. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh for a very long time. He actually is more to the right of John Roberts uh, and doesn't have the same sort of chief justice institutional concerns, but I think for him as an individual uh, who came out of those very tumultuous hearings that he has a lot of incentive to maybe work with the chief, uh, maybe to the consternation of those uh, further to his right. Um, you know that I am... Uh Taking too much of your time because I love the insights, but I have to share our phenomenal questions from uh, yeah, sure. our audience. And a bunch of folks have questions about Citizens United. In light of today's political climate, do you think Roberts would reconsider Citizens United? When I think of Roberts, I'm reminded of Obama's sharp words in the State of the Union about Citizens United. Did your research and covering any interesting response from Roberts or other court members? He is he is dug in on that, and he, um, as I mentioned was aware of the kind of criticism that would have come from it. Uh, this is even before President Obama made his remarks at the, the State of the Union in 2010. But the chief writes this, this separate statement, uh, trying to explain how you know, we're not, it's not as bad as it looks. This is all uh, because the, the First Amendment dictates it. Uh, the prior precedent uh, really have failed to, failed to deliver for the country. And he has since, not only has he reinforced that ruling with, with decisions of his own that go further to roll back regulations, I'm thinking of the McCutcheon case and others, he recently said when he was giving a speech at um, Belmont, Belmont College where Alberto Gonzalez is now dean down in Nashville, he said that he, he sees himself as the justice who is most committed to the First Amendment. So he... He Robert said that. Yes. Fascinating. I know. You should call that up. I was yes. so struck by that. Wow. I, I know. Because they're, they're all pretty committed. I know. Yeah. I know. But he, I think this is, wow. he sees what he wrote and did in Citizens United and subsequent uh, campaign finance rulings as proof of that. You know, the idea that free speech means more, more speech in elections, more money in elections from both sides, and uh, I don't think he has any regrets, irrespective of what's been shown in the country. And he was, said, one, of the, one of the audience members referred to the uh, statement of President Obama, boy, he was so mad about that. I mean, he, he, and he has complained about that since. He said so, he said, I don't know why we go to the State of the Union yeah, if the yeah. president's gonna be so partisan. Right, but then he goes to the State of the Union because he knows that if he didn't go, it would say something about the court. Yes, and that relates to a couple of questions of asking you yeah. to comment on Robert's uh, comments about Obama judges and his concern that the judiciary is being unfairly attacked by the political branches and what else you think he will do to respond to those attacks. 
I think he's going to pick his shots. I don't think that was at all a spontaneous uh, statement from him. He did it um, uh, in response to a question that came from Mark Sherman of the Associated Press right after President Trump had disparaged a judge who had ruled against him, against his administration. He, uh, the president disparaged the judge as, oh, that's just an Obama judge. And uh, Mark had put in a request to the, the court about, uh, you know, how was the chief responding? Now, Mark and others, myself included, had constantly been asking for any reaction to other issues. For example, remember when Donald Trump had spoken against Judge Curiel, as, uh, disparaged him as just a Mexican judge, I think with the words, he was the man who had heard the Trump University case. And the, the chief had not wanted to respond at that time. The chief had not wanted to respond at other times that uh, Donald Trump had disparaged the judiciary. But he was thinking about it. He was thinking about it. He was trying to figure out, what do I say? What do I do? And lower court judges had been imploring the administrative office of the courts and the chief to, to say something, to be in, in that forum. But I believe the chief was worried about, you know, if I, if I respond, given what we know of President Trump, what happens next? And of course, we know what happened next after uh, Chief Justice Roberts rebuked him with the, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges. Donald Trump came back with several lines on Twitter, and the chief said nothing. So I think what we're going to see is the chief just waiting to figure out, does it, are there things that escalate that he feels like he has to come in on? Or I think he will carefully, be very careful about picking his shots, because the last thing he wants to do is get into some sort of public spat with Donald Trump. Um, if you could refigure the Supreme Court, expand to 15, for example, would you do it or maintain the partisan status quo and why? It's the, the numbers, the, partisan, the partisanship is not necessarily a reflection of the fact that there are nine. You know, it's a, a reflection of who the presidents were who got to appoint these people and the fact that Mitch McConnell blocked the Merrick Garland thing for so long. So it's not... Uh, it's not a byproduct of the numbers. It's, you know, it's our political times. And I think to go up to 15, you know, you're, you're, if you go up to 15 and have the president appoint, you, you could still potentially have the, a, a, another partisan split that way, depending on who, who becomes president. But this idea that um, a couple candidates have mentioned about you know, changing who, who actually chooses the justices, you know, that's going to present all sorts of constitutional, that, that's a, actually a constitutional problem. It's not the, the, the issue of Congress. Just, just to make sure everybody understands this, and frankly, this audience probably does understand it because you guys all are so, so aware of what, uh, what's constitutional and what's statutory here, but it, Congress has the power to set the number. Congress last set the number at nine. It, it's been at a high of 10 and a low of five, and the number was set actually 150 years ago this month at, a, at the nine. And it hasn't, despite um, attempts to change that, including in the 30s with the court packing effort of FDR, it's never been changed. It's always been nines for the last 150 years. That's why I don't think this proposal is going to go anywhere. But if, if um, Congress changed it statutorily like that, which it has the power to, it would still be in the president's hands to appoint. So you're always going to have the risk of a, of a polarized uh, political court. And I, I don't know, I do not know what would change it, frankly, in our lifetimes, Jeff. Here's a great uh, last question. Will Chief Justice Roberts steer the court away from major issues, abortion and executive privilege, to keep peace on the court and maintain its bipartisan legitimacy? And if, uh, with one more conservative appointment, replacing a liberal justice, can he do so? That, that's ex that is the $64,000 question because right now, especially with cooperation from Brett Kavanaugh, they are steering away from issues. They've had uh, pending for months now abortion rights cases and cases over uh, job discrimination involving people uh, asserting claims based on sexual orientation and gender identity that they do not want to take up right now, or at least the chief doesn't want to take up right now. Uh, so they have been uh, avoiding certain issues, uh, some immigration cases, and uh, but it takes just four votes to what we refer to as granting cert, that's granting review in cases that have come up from people who lost in lower courts. 
And if there's another hard right conservative appointed by Donald Trump, that would mean there'd be a ready four votes. Right now, the chief can withhold a vote, and it looks like uh, Justice Kavanaugh might, and he has, frankly, in, in uh, the um, Planned Parenthood Medicaid spending case, where he did not give the, his, his vote to the more conservative justices. But with, with six conservatives, there would be probably more chances that you'd have the four votes to grant a case. Yep. Friends, Joan Biskupik will sign her book outside and for casting nonpartisan legitimacy on the justices of the Supreme Court, please join me in thanking Joan Biskupik. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, this episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. Thank you.